Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. This morning, we're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 6, and in just a moment, we're going to look at the very first part of this chapter. You might remember, as we study John's Gospel, it's organized around seven signs, and these are seven extraordinary miracles that our Lord Jesus performed. And then those signs are sometimes paralleled by what we call the I am statements, where Jesus says very important things about himself. And so we need to think about the overall structure as we look at the specifics today. Let's talk about these seven signs. The first one comes in John chapter 2. It's Jesus' very first miracle where he turns the water to wine at a wedding in Cana. And then the second sign comes shortly after that. In John chapter 4, we have uh, him healing the royal official's son. You might remember that story where he just, just pronounced a healing, spoke it, and it happened even with the boy not present. We have a third sign that comes in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals an invalid, a man who was not able to walk for 38 years, He was at a pool called Bethesda in Jerusalem. And then the fourth miraculous sign is the one we're going to talk about today. It's typically called Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And that's really um, kind of an understatement. We'll talk about why in just a moment. And then we have a fifth sign that comes right after this one. It's where Jesus is walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee A sixth sign comes a few chapters later where Jesus heals a a man that has been born blind. And then the seventh sign occurs in John chapter 11 where Jesus raises his best friend or one of his best friends named Lazarus from the dead. So all of these signs are miracles that John has kind of pulled out of uh, all of the miracles that Jesus did, and he's focused upon them to help us understand who Jesus is and who he was, what he did, and what it all means. And so these are very, very important. And then again, sometimes those signs are paralleled with these I am statements. One of the I am statements, Jesus says, in John 6, right after this miracle, is I am the bread of life. And so that's going to come alongside this miraculous sign of the feeding of the 5,000. One of the things you need to know about this particular miracle, this particular sign that makes it unique is that it's the only miracle of all the miracles that are talked about in the scriptures. And by the way, there are 36 specific miracles that 
uh, are talked about by the gospel writers that Jesus performed. And again, we know that they are selective. They're not exhaustive. They're just representative. He did many, many more than what is even talked about. In fact, John even says that at the end of his book. In John 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples than just these, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, the ones that are given are written that you may believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's what all of this is pointing towards. And one of the unique things about the feeding of the 5,000 is that it's the only miracle of all of the miracles recorded. It's the only one outside of Jesus' resurrection. It's the only one recorded by all four gospel writers. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all thought this particular miracle was significant enough to include in their writing about Jesus. So there's obviously something very important that we need to hear and see and learn from this story. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text, John chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. I'm just going to kind of narrate through the story a little bit, and then at the end, we'll kind of draw some, some life lessons, some conclusions, some applications for us today. So John chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. So let's pause here for just a second. It says, sometime after this, and it's referring, of course, to what was told to us in chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, we saw how Jesus made these six extraordinary claims about who he was. We looked at that in last week's sermon, and these claims infuriated the religious teachers who then began to persecute Jesus and challenge Jesus and even try to get Jesus killed. So we began to see that happening early in John's gospel, where they're trying to get rid of him and even kill him. So sometime after this and his encounter with these religious teachers and their opposition, it says that he crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Now what this means is that Jesus is crossing very likely from the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Most of the villages uh, in Jesus' day were in that northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee or the northern shore or even the western side of the lake. So when he crosses over, he's going to the eastern side of the sea. And the eastern side is very, very remote. There's a lot of kind of mountainous hills. It's real steep uh, from the shore, quickly gets very, very steep up into these kind of mountainous hills. And then there's this high plateau at the top that today is part of what's known as the Golan Heights. And so what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee, if you ever get to go there on a Holy Land experience, um, one of my memories about my first trip there was at the Sea of Galilee. We stayed on the western shore, and so we were able to go out to the sea and look to the east. And what you see is this very rugged, remote shoreline that has, even today, little to no 
cities or villages. There's really one small village kind of down to the south. And so like if you're looking at that at night or towards the evening, you don't see uh, any lights. It's still very, very remote. And it looks just like it must have looked during Jesus' day. And that's why I think it was a very surreal moment for me when I first saw that scene. Even today, there's not uh, a whole lot of development on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It looks very much like it would have looked in his time. It says, though, they went there because it was remote. We know that from some of the other gospel accounts that tell us that Jesus was and his disciples were kind of getting overwhelmed by all the people and all the needs. Even one of the gospel writers, Mark, tells us that the disciples had not even been able to eat because of the crowds and their needs. So Jesus takes them to the other side, really to get away from the crowds. But we're also told in Mark that the crowds followed around by foot and they actually beat him to the other side and were there waiting for him when he got there. And that Jesus then had compassion on the crowds. They were like sheep without a shepherd, Mark tells us. And so then he spent time healing their sick, teaching them, and then this story occurs. So a great crowd of people followed. And because of the signs they had seen Jesus performing, all of these healing miracles, we can imagine Jesus was now a major celebrity. He was this miracle man from Galilee, and people were coming uh, from everywhere to see him, see him perform the miracles. They were coming to bring family members that were very, very sick in in hopes that he would touch them and heal them, and uh, all of those things were happening. So there was really this frenzy about Jesus. I kind of... Think about him when you see pictures of of celebrities and all of the paparazzi and all of the fanfare and all of the frenzy when celebrities show up. And it's so much sometimes that it overwhelms them because they they just want to get away. That's kind of what we see in the backstory. But Jesus, when he sees the crowd, ministers to them. Verse 3 says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples The Jewish Passover festival was near. That means this was probably in March or April. Uh, And uh, it was in the springtime. And so the crowd is there. The festival is coming soon. Jesus sees the great crowd. He has compassion on them, Mark tells us. John says, then he looks to Philip, verse 5. And he says, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? The other gospel accounts tell us that he had been teaching. This happens late in the day. The disciples actually say, we really need to send the people away so they can go to the various villages and find food to eat. And then Jesus basically says, let's feed them ourselves. Why don't you feed them? And so that's what's going on here. That's kind of the setup to this story. By the way, when we talk about the crowd, we know from Verse 10, if we just skip down there, that there are 5,000 men who are in this crowd. And that's why I say this this miracle is a little bit um, uh, misleading in that the way it's known, the feeding of the 5,000. There were 5,000 men. 
And most theologians and historians believe that if you add women and children to the crowd, which obviously would have been there, that the number would have been more like 15 to 20,000 people gathered in this very remote region on the eastern shores uh, or eastern kind of mountains above the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. So put that in perspective. If you've ever been to Simmons Bank Arena here just in uh, the Little Rock area, North Little Rock, uh, or if you've actually traveled up to Fayetteville and watched the Razorbacks play basketball in Bud Walton Arena, that's going to be around eighteen to 19,000 people, which is probably about the size of this crowd. It gives you perspective. And they were all gathered in this very remote area. And so now Jesus sees that they're going to be hungry. They haven't eaten The disciples are aware of that. And so he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, why Philip? Why did he ask Philip? Well, perhaps it's just because Philip happened to be right there next to him. But it might have also been that Philip was from the village of Bethsaida, which was on that north uh, eastern shore, right, right on the edge. It would have been the, really the last main village, Jewish village on the Sea of Galilee. And so perhaps that's why he asked him this question. Perhaps it's because Philip was one of the more skeptical ones of the disciples. We don't really know. But he did ask Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people? And it says then, verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So pay attention to that, that phrase, to test him. This was a test. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Well, Philip answered him, but really, if you look at his answer, he wasn't answering the question Jesus asked. He was answering another question. Philip says it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Jesus asked him, where can we buy bread? He told him, we don't have near enough money to buy bread. If we used all the money we have probably in their treasury, he said they would only, each one would get a tiny bite of food. We could not possibly feed this crowd. And in fact, really, if you think about the geography and the population of these small villages, there are really only seven small villages that we can identify that were around the Sea of Galilee during Jesus' lifetime. It would have been impossible for Uh, if you had all the food in all of those villages to take care of this crowd, a crowd this size. It was an overwhelming need for these, for the people, for, for the disciples. And Philip recognizes that. And then it says in verse eight, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, you might remember Andrew. I love Andrew, one of my favorite disciples. Uh, in part because he was, one of, he was the first disciple along with another unnamed disciple. I think that was John who first followed John the Baptist. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist points out Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then Andrew and that other disciple began to follow Jesus. And they spend the day with him. And they become his first disciples 
And then immediately, what does Andrew do? He goes and finds his brother, Simon Peter, and he introduces him to Jesus the next day. And so Andrew is, every time we see him, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. And here's another account. He goes out into the crowd. He finds a small boy, a little boy, with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And he brings this little boy to Jesus. He had the wherewithal to know, if I can just bring him to Jesus, then maybe something good is going to happen. But even Andrew says at the end, but how far will they go among so many? He too knew this was an impossible situation. How in the world could we feed all these people? This is all we have, this small boy's small sack lunch. It's what we have. And then verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. Mark tells us it was green grass, so it was springtime. And they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. And then Jesus, we're told in other, uh, the other accounts that he divided them up, or he had the disciples divide them up into groups of 150s. Why those numbers, we're really not sure. Perhaps I think the groups of hundreds were families with small children, and then the groups of 50s might have been just adults, and that might have kind of evened out the amount of food that each group would get. But think about that. You have 15,000 to 20,000 people there in all these groups. It was going to be each disciple, if they took one of those groups, it would be serving over 1,000 people food. It's going to be an enormous task. But he gets them organized. And then it says Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. That was his custom. And that's why many of us will have a prayer or a blessing before the mirror because Jesus, uh, before a meal, because Jesus always did that. He gave thanks. He usually looked up to heaven as he did so, and he thanked God for his provision. And that's what he does here. He took the loaves, gave thanks. And then as he's doing that, I want you just to imagine this scene. Think about the disciples. As Jesus is looking up and praying and thanks, I imagine the disciples are looking around at each other, wondering what in the world is Jesus about to do? This is going to be a great embarrassment as we start dividing up these tiny loaves of bread and these few small fish and see how far that goes. But Jesus knew what he was about to do. And it says he began to distribute the food. Now, probably what he did was he was pudding. We know there are baskets. We'll hear about these big baskets that they had. He was probably gave each disciple a basket and he begins distributing the food into the baskets. And then they began to take it to the people. And what happens is the food somehow, some way just begins to multiply. And the baskets become full, and the people then began to eat, and they eat as much as they wanted. Notice that in verse 11. And he did the same with the fish. And then verse 12, when they had all had enough to eat, ate all they wanted, 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, why 12 and why this situation? Was it just what, what, it, what it was or was there some symbolism here? Some believe there's a connection to the 12 tribes of Israel and basically a statement that perhaps is being made that Jesus is certainly making himself known as the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel. But I think even more practically, there were 12 disciples and these 12 disciples were all going to get to take leftovers home to their families and their neighbors and enjoy the food uh, the next few days. Then it says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And what they mean, this is the prophet that Moses and the other prophets told us about. Not just a prophet of God, a man of God, but the long-awaited prophet, the long-awaited Messiah. Perhaps this is the Messiah who's come into the world is very likely what they meant. And then Jesus, verse 15, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so Jesus is getting away from the people in part because of their expectations of what type of king he was to be. You see, the people really wanted a king that was going to help their nation become great again. Make Israel great again would have been a, a great slogan for them. And then they wanted a king that was going to overthrow the Roman overlords, the Romans who were ruling over them, who were taxing them, who were always uh, keeping them uh, in their place. They wanted their freedom. They wanted their independence. They wanted a king who would be a military leader and would give them back these types of things, their freedom in particular. But Jesus was a king. We know that even later in the story. You remember when Jesus was arrested, Pilate, Pontius Pilate asked him. He was charged with being the king of the Jews. He said, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, but I'm not that kind of king. My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Jesus, with pun fully intended, had bigger fish to fry. He wanted to be the king of kings. He was the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He wanted to be their spiritual king that would lead the people of God into a spiritual kingdom that had eternal value and eternal rewards. They were thinking far too shallow, far too limited with their vision of what type of king they wanted and intended Jesus to be. And so because of that, Jesus separated himself from them at this time. So here's, that's the story. What do, we, what do we do with this? What do we learn from this story? 
Why is this story included in all four Gospels? Why did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us this story? What does he want us to learn from this? What type of application should we glean from it? Well, let's start here. I think one of the learning points is to remind ourselves, really like all of these signs and all of the miracles that are given in the Bible, we need to remember that we serve a God who makes the impossible possible. We serve a God who makes the impossible possible. And the Bible is just full of stories of our God who performs mighty miracles in behalf of his people. And we can just go, there's countless. I think about some of the stories like when the Israelites in Exodus chapter 14 had finally been freed from Egypt and Pharaoh finally let God's people go. And after those plagues, you remember the story, and they were headed to the promised land. They made it as far as the Red Sea. And what happened? Pharaoh changed his mind. You remember the story. He sent his army, which, by the way, would have been the most powerful army in the world at the time, after the Israelites. And they were angry. And the Israelites found themselves hemmed in. And the only, the Red Sea was on one side, the mountains were on the other side, and the army was on the other side, coming after them. They had nowhere to go. And we see in that story, they cry out in fear, and Moses tells them, just stand still and put your faith in God. He's going to take care of us. And sure enough, that's when the mighty miracle, the parting of the Red Sea occurs, And the people walk through on dry land. And then the army foolishly comes after them, the Egyptian army. And you know the story, they drown. And God eliminates the threat. We have story after story like this. Hezekiah, king of Judah, surrounded in Jerusalem by an Assyrian army, outnumbered, outmanned out-resourced in every way. The odds were completely against God's people. And what happens? They pray to God. They ask for a miracle. What does God do? He gives them a miracle. That night, one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die in their sleep. And the next day, they pack up and leave. So not only did the Israelites survive, they thrived. And that happens time and time again, not just with military armies against God's people, but in so many other ways. Anytime they are out-resourced or outnumbered or overwhelmed and they seek God, what does God do? He provides for them, often miraculously. If you and I need a miracle, we are assured in Scripture that we can ask for a miracle and we have a miracle-working God who often will give us miracles. And if he doesn't give us a miracle, he'll give us his grace, which is a miracle in and of itself, and his grace will be sufficient to carry us through a difficulty for his glory. And so if you're here today and you need a miracle These stories, like the feeding of the 5,000, remind us that we serve a God who makes the impossible possible. That's true for you and me as well. I love what Matthew 19 
says, verse 26, this is Jesus' words. He says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Never forget that. With God on our side, by our side, he will take care of our needs. Trust him. A second thing, a learning point we can glean from this is that little becomes much when it is given to God. You know, one of the unsung heroes in this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the little boy. The little boy who was willing to bring his little sack lunch before a really big God. And he gave that lunch to Jesus to share with the people. They didn't force him to do that. They wouldn't do that, but they invited him to do that. And he did willingly. And then guess what happens? God turns it into something extraordinary, something great, something large. And he feeds the crowd with that one tiny sack lunch. Sometimes we think, man, we just don't have very much to give. Sometimes we think, gosh, Lord, I just have a tiny little bit of talent. What good could that do for the kingdom? Sometimes we think, God, I just have these tiny resources, this small amount of money that I can give and invest in the kingdom. What good could that possibly do? Sometimes we think, gosh, Lord, I just have a tiny amount of time. I'm so overwhelmed and all these responsibilities. There's only a little bit of time that I can really give to invest in ministry. What you and I need to remember is that with God, little becomes much. When it is given to him, given to a big God, and you and I need to understand whatever we have, we need to generously bring it before our all-powerful God and let him do with it what he wants. And you and I will be amazed at how God will use us just like he used that little boy with a few small loaves of bread and tiny fish to do a really giant, big miracle. It's because God is so big. Give him what you have and let him take it from there. A third learning point here is that we serve a God who always provides with abundance. I love how in this story, everyone ate as much as they wanted and they had 12 basketfuls left over. And this is very consistent of the miracles, especially the provision miracles that we see in scripture. Remember when God fed the people with the manna in the desert, they would wake up and it was like dew on the ground. I've said it before, I think it was Krispy Kreme donuts that had nutrition value. And they could eat as much as they wanted, but they couldn't, they couldn't store it. You might remember that story. They had to, God wanted them to have faith for each and every day, but they could have as much as they wanted uh, each day. And so this is the type of God we have. At the wedding, he changed the water to wine. He didn't just give them a little bit of wine to kind of tide them over, right? To barely squeak by, no. There were these six jars, and at a minimum, they held 20 gallons each. We had 120 gallons at a minimum of wine. 
That's plenty of wine to take care of a wedding party in the first century, Galilee. God gives in abundance. And what is true physically is even more true spiritually. I love what he says in Ephesians chapter 3. And he's talking about prayer here. And he says, when you pray, know this. This is Paul. He says that God, the one you're praying to, will do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine according to his power that is work, at work within us. He will do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. God always provides with abundance. And then finally, a fourth learning point. When we pass a test of faith, we have a testimony of God's faithfulness. Remember, he told Philip early in this story, or verse six, it says he asked him the question he asked him because he was a test. What kind of test? It was a test of faith. And one of the goals of Jesus is always, and was with his disciples and for his uh, his first century disciples, but also his 21st century disciples, and that is to grow our faith. He allows us to go through hardships and struggles and situations that can be very overwhelming. Situations where we feel maybe outmanned or out, uh, under-resourced or like the odds are absolutely stacked against us. He allows us to do that because he wants us to look to him in faith and trust him to help us, to lead us, to provide for us. And when we do that, what happens? He grows our faith and he provides. I love what James chapter one, two through four says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We face trials in this life. They were facing actual persecution and suffering as trials. But they also faced sickness and they had financial stress, relational problems, all the same things you and I have as well. These are trials. And he said, consider it joy because you know, verse three, the testing of your faith, it's a test of faith. These tests produce perseverance and the perseverance, when it finishes its work, allows us to be mature and complete. What is he talking about? Spiritually mature and spiritually complete. It's growing our faith. And when we grow our faith and we trust him and we see him show up and then show out in our behalf, what does it do? It gives us a testimony of God's faithfulness. And that's really ultimately what this is about. Test of faith to help us grow our faith to have a testimony of God's faithfulness. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible is the story found in Daniel chapter three about these three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You might remember the story. The king had built a, a huge gold statue of an idol. And then he told his people they had to worship this idol, bow down before it and worship it. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew they could not do such a thing and would not and did not. And they got caught. Somebody told on them. 
And then the king confronted them and he said, I'm gonna give you one more chance and if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, guess what's gonna happen? I'm gonna throw you into a fiery furnace. You're gonna be burned to death today. And you remember what these guys said when they had that kind of test of their faith? They said, oh king, our God, in essence our king, has the ability to save us even if you throw us into your fiery furnace. But then they said something very profound, but even if he doesn't, we're not gonna dishonor him. We're not going to do what you're telling us to do. If you remember the rest of the story, they threw him into the fire and guess what? A, an angel of the Lord or perhaps the Lord himself shows up with him and they are not harmed. The men that threw him into the fire, fiery furnace, the soldiers that threw him in there died. They were not harmed. And when they came out, what happens to them? The king actually promotes them into positions of honor. When God's people trust him, they not only survive, but they thrive. We need to see that in all of these stories and in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We serve a big, big God who loves us, who's with us, who's for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.